You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Yeah. Uh, if you are a first-time guest or you're a visitor here this morning, this is your first time rolling into Stonegate, we are super glad and excited that you're here worshiping with us. Under your seat, there is a visitor card. If you'll just fill that out for us, put your info on there, fold that in half, drop it in the basket during the offering time uh, toward the end of service. We promise to make that worth your while this week. It's just our way of uh, being able to take care of you guys real well. So please be sure to do that. And of course, on the other side, uh, there is a spot for prayer requests. So if you have prayer needs, if you need somebody interceding for you and what's going on in your life this week, fill that out. We are committed to praying for you. Fold it in half, same thing, drop it in the basket and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. Uh, I'm going to pray briefly before we get started. So uh, pray with me again. uh, Father, as we get into things here, um, God, I pray for just a special grace on my words that um, they would come across clear and true and helpful and that Christ would be exalted and that your spirit would be at work. And um, we, uh, we need you every time Uh, Your word is open every time your gospel is preached. We need you. So, Lord, we invite you to work this morning. Do whatever it is you want to do in the hearts of your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, I got to be honest, this was a really difficult week for me uh, in terms of prepping for this sermon. Um, Rodney asked me to preach this Sunday, uh, probably a month and a half ago, and uh, he asked me to preach on the Sanctity of Life. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so I was eager to do so. I said yes, and now, uh, you know, uh, we're here, and I just realized I didn't have a clue what I was getting myself into. Um, And maybe it's that I didn't expect to be bombarded by um, the massiveness of this subject or the complexity of this subject or the scope of it uh, or the horror of it. I think one of the things that made it hard for me this week as I was prepping is just realizing uh, the pathetic excuse for concern that I've said that I have for this issue. The Holy Spirit has been really kind uh, to expose my prayerlessness, my lack of activism, my lack of mental assent to this issue. It's just not on my radar very much. And as I've sat with these themes and what we're talking about, I've just realized it needs to be. I think another one of the reasons that uh, this has been hard, maybe the, the biggest reason this week is knowing that I'm just gonna get to this moment on this stage and stand in front of you guys and, and have to share about what is virtually the, the most divisive topic in America and, uh, and hope that that goes well. Um, I mean, we are talking about something that literally severs churches, like splits up communities and families and like it drives a hard line down right the middle of our nation even. 
and these words that we're talking about this morning, they just evoke things in us, you know? When I mentioned the word, for instance, abortion this morning, for some of you in this room, when you hear that word, there is an immediate righteous indignation that rises up in you, right? For you, that, that is tantamount to Holocaust talk, right? And as well, you should feel that way. But then the person sitting right next to you, that person, when they hear that word, they might be recalling to mind the abortion that they had when they were 20 or 16. And for them, when they hear the word, it's a mountain of shame and guilt and remorse and embarrassment and please don't talk about this. And next to that person is maybe a person who's actually contemplating having an abortion themselves or being involved in the process, maybe a boyfriend or a loved one or a uh, husband. And they're wondering this morning, where, where am I to land with this, right? This room is filled with opinions and it's touchy. And I feel that this morning. And I want you to hear me on this. Um, I can't promise this morning that your toes won't be stepped on. I, I can't promise you an incredibly um, sensitive and euphemistic uh, presentation of this topic. I can't, I can't give you that this morning. But my commitment to you this morning is this. I promise to be biblical. I promise to be biblical this morning because it is only when we stand under the, the word of God that we'll be able to rightly see where this issue is and rightly make changes for where we want to see it go. That's the only way that we're going to have any hope this morning. So I can't promise sensitivity this morning. I'm asking for a little bit thicker skin than maybe some of you have. But I promise it's, it's biblical and it's what God has to say about it. And that's the best that any pastor, any preacher can offer you this morning. Okay? Okay. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday uh, for our church family. And, and simply put, when you think about that concept of the sanctity of life, uh, it basically means that we as a church affirm the clear teaching of scripture that each human life is made in the image of God. And that each human life bears the marks of their creator and is therefore endowed with an intrinsic and an, a unique value at every stage of life. So when you hear the word sanctity of life, that phrase, put that thought around it. It's an affirmation of the value, the preciousness, the, the holiness, the sacredness of each individual human life because that life was made in God's image and it has worth because of that. Just look at uh, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created in male and female, he created him. This is the theological concept called the imago Dei, that we are made in the image, the imago of God, Dei, that, that we bear a resemblance to our maker. No other thing on this planet can say that about themselves. There's not a rock 
or stream or sunset or bird or frog on earth that can make that claim. It is unique to us. It's unique to every one of us in this room. There's a preciousness to us that was endowed on us by our creator through his fashioning. In the image of God, he created us. But it's not just that we were created in his image that makes us valuable. It's that at the very moment of our conception, he was at work fashioning us as his image bearers, that he took time to make us image bearers. Uh, Look at Psalm 139, or I'll just read it for you, actually. Psalm 139, 13 through 16, it says this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God was sculpting, weaving, seeing, fashioning you before you were even born. That's the claim of scripture. You and I and every human being in this room bear his image as creatures. So now why are we giving a Sunday to Sanctity of Life? Why this topic? It seems that, I mean, if you open your Bible, you land that position, it would seem. Why give a whole Sunday to something that seems so intuitive? Well, we're talking about it today because next week, January 22nd, will be the 44-year marker that uh, the Roe v. Wade decision was handed down. That was the moment where the God-ordained reality of human personhood and value came under attack in a massive, massive way. Now, we all are really familiar with the term Roe v. Wade. It's, it's by far the most uh, significant uh, court case that's happened in Supreme Court history. Um, but maybe we're not incredibly familiar with the details. So I'm just going to give you a brief overview of what happened on that day in January and what that means for us now. And then we'll tease out some of those implications. So January 22nd, 1973, Roe versus Wade went before the Supreme Court uh, in a seven to two decision by the court. uh, They handed down a verdict concerning um, abortion rights statewide, nationwide. And and here's essentially the four elements of what happened. So feel free to take notes or or just listen, whatever you want to do. Sort of tenant number one was this. In the first three months of pregnancy, from conception to three months, states were no longer able to make laws regulating abortions, okay? You could no longer legally make a law in the state of Texas that says, no, you cannot terminate your child if it was in that early gestational period, one, uh, you know, one day to three months. So that was stipulation number one. Stipulation number two was that, in that th- from that three-month marker all the way to the time of viability uh, or roughly six months is what they would say. So from three to six months, laws could be made to regulate abortions, but only if they were made in order to protect the health of the mother. So notice, not, not the baby, because the baby is a non-person in this situation and in this court case. So stipulation two was you could make laws, month three to six, but only if that law was to, to help the health of the mother. 
And then the next one, from month six or the time of viability up to the time of birth, the Roe v. Wade decision stated that no state could prevent abortions if that abortion would preserve the health of the mother or the life of the mother. And this is the kicker, and this is where it gets really interesting. The life and health of the mother includes, and I quote, all factors, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the woman's age relevant to the well-being of the patient, which means that an abortion can be had now for any conceivable reason that a mother gives. That is the unfolding of what happened January 22nd, 1973. And since that ruling, nearly 60 million abortions have occurred in the U.S. To put that into perspective, there were 6 million Jews executed in the Holocaust. This is 10 of those. 10 Holocausts. Approximately 1 million babies are aborted annually. That's roughly the total of all U.S. military deaths that have ever happened in every war that the U.S. has ever been involved in combined. And that happens every year. Every day, 3,000 babies are killed. Consider this for a moment. That would be like you waking up to 9-11 on the television every morning, every day of your life. 3,000 babies every day, which means if you divide that out, that from the time I started speaking to the time I finished this sermon, 90 babies will have been killed. Feel that for a minute. The numbers are so large, at some point it, it kind of feels so uh, intangible, doesn't it? We don't have a good sense of what 60 million looks like, feels like. But those are the numbers. Let's talk about the race element, because it gets even more complex as you go down the line. Did you know that um, 80% of abortion facilities are located in minority neighborhoods? 80%. Think about this for a minute. About 13% of women in America are African-American, but they receive over 35% of the abortions. There is targeting happening. They, I, I, I grew up uh, in Houston. The largest abortion clinic in our state, in the state of Texas, is located in one of the poorest districts in all of Houston. It's a giant seven-story Planned Parenthood that I drove by every day when I went to the airport to fly somewhere. The second largest in Texas is in South Dallas, just up the road, 25 minutes, 67 in Wheatland, right by 20 up there, right in the heart of South Dallas, Dallas heavily minority populated. In 2013, New York City, uh, reported that more black babies were aborted than born. I just want you to feel that. And let me just say how nicely this squares with the founder of Planned Parenthood's position, 
Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood uh, in the early 1900s. She was a um, avid racist. She was a eugenist who believed that only genetically fit people deserve to live. And in fact, she's been quoting many horrendous quotes, uh, but one of them she referred to black people as human weeds to be pulled out. That's the foundation. That's where it came from. And these are the outworkings. It gets sadder. Did you know that 90%, 90% of all Down syndrome babies are aborted in the womb? 90% unfit for life and we terminate them and we slaughter them. Now on some level to me as I was meditating on all this craziness this week I began to think uh, it, on some level it seems to make no sense that this would be as pervasive as it is in America. I could imagine it in maybe some other countries, but when I saw these numbers and I thought about where we are in America, I thought, it, how is this possible? I mean, we're talking about a nation where roughly 75% of the population are professing Christians, right? With ready access to Bibles everywhere. And the scripture is so plainly clear, we evidenced it earlier, right? Not just the sanctity of life, but the penalty for sin, the penalty for murder, the penalty for the shedding of innocent blood, it's all there. And so many of us are so familiar with it. And, and even if we took the religion aspect out of the conversation, science is no longer on the side of the abortion argument. It's no longer there. The advancement of medical technology and molecular biology over the past 40 years has completely obliterated that old argument that a fetus is just a clump of cells. You've heard that term before, right? That it, it, it's just a clump of cells. Not when you put a 3D ultrasound on it, it's not, right? Not when we can see them from every angle, it's not. Not when you can hear their beating heart, it's not. It's so much more. In fact, scientists now know that at the moment of conception, you have the entire, listen to this, the entire genetic profile that makes you you right at the moment of conception. In fact, the only difference between an unborn person and a born person is their size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependence. It's an acronym, SLED, size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependence. So let's just work through those for a second and consider what that means for an unborn child. Size, let's take size for a minute. When was it ever appropriate to kill somebody because they were littler than you? Because that's the position, right? Do, do, do we kill six months old because they're tiny? Is that how it works? If they're not a clump of cells, if they're a baby, but really just the only difference between them and us is they're tiny, what gives us the right? It's a fallacious argument, isn't it? How about the level of development? How much development do you think is enough before you're worthy of living? How much before you don't have to fear being slaughtered? Is it a beating heart, which starts three weeks and one day after conception? Is it eyeballs? How about teeth? My six-year-old has not lost any of her baby teeth. Should she be killed because her adult teeth hadn't come in yet? She's not fully developed. A four-year-old 
girl doesn't have a, a fully developed reproductive system. She can't give birth to children. Should she be killed because she's not fully developed? Do you see this argument unwinding? Let's talk about environment. So, so an abortionist would argue, and I've heard them do this, that well, it's because of location, right? It's because they're in my body. But what, since when did location have an impact on value, right? Like, are, like do you go in one environment and, and you're safe and, and then the other environment and now all bets are off, you, you have the uh, no right but to be slaughtered? Like you got a, rooms in your house where, you know, you got a living room. Do you have like a death room in your house? Is that how that works? We go in and out of environments where our lives are in jeopardy legally. That's just not how it works, is it? So it's not an issue of environment. How about degree of dependency? Abortionists argue that because a baby can't live independently from their mother, they're tethered to them literally, right? By an umbilical cord, they can't live independently from them that we should kill them. But you can imagine where we're gonna go with this. We're dependents. I mean, who's not dependent in here? Is, is, a, is a one day old any less dependent than that fetus? Of course not. How about a six month old? How about a four year old? Why don't you leave your four-year-old for a week, see how they do, right? Do we kill them because of that? Of course not. It doesn't make any sense. The only difference between an unborn baby and a born person is size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependence. And in all of those categories, the argument is fallacious. It breaks down. It makes no sense. It's not compelling. So, Scripture isn't on their side. Science is no longer on their side. And 60 million babies have been murdered. So how is this possible? That's what I felt this week. How does it continue every day? 3,000 babies every day. It continues because of a mindset. And this is where I want to camp. And the mindset is this. Self above all. Self above all. And this is where this issue collides with every one of us in the room. Whether you had an abortion or not, it is a worldview issue that makes abortion possible. And that worldview is self above all. I want to look at our text together today. Mark 10, just a handful of verses, verses 13 through 16. I'm going to read it. You can follow along in your Bible if you'd like. It's under your seat. Mark 10, 13 through 16. And it reads, and they were bringing children to him, Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child does not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying hands on them. So Jesus was on his way to Capernaum. 
uh, from Capernaum to Judea. That's what the beginning of this chapter says. He was leaving Capernaum. He was heading to Judea with his disciples. Chapter 10, verse one tells us that when he arrived, when he rolled into town, uh, there was a big crowd gathered to hear from him. And the text says in verse one that, quote, as was his custom, he taught them. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus primarily came to do in his earthly ministry was to preach and to teach. Luke 4, 43 says this, I must, Jesus is talking, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well for I was sent for this purpose. That's what he came to do, to go around town to town, serving, humbling himself, preaching, doing miracles, casting out demons, that's what his objective was. And so picture the scene for a minute. He rolls into town with his disciples. They're continuing the mission of proclaiming the coming of God's kingdom, massive, important work going on, right? And then all of a sudden, a bunch of booger-nosed kids, they run up at him, parents dropping their toddlers on his lap, seven-year-olds asking them to make their brother disappear. Like, he, like craziness is how he came to preach the gospel and all of a sudden it's Chuck E. Cheese right in the middle of Judea and, and his disciples are like, what is happening, right? They're looking around and they are super bothered at this moment. They're thinking to themselves, this is not okay. They probably wanna say something like, do you know who this guy is? Have you ever heard the name Yahweh? That's this guy, right? We're rolling with him. He's got stuff to do. He's got miracles to perform. He's got, he's got people to heal, demons to cast out. He's got sermons to preach, people. Step off, right? That's the sentiment of the disciples. When the disciples saw those kids, they saw inconveniences to their big plans that day. This text is subtle, but do you see that, right? They, what they saw when they looked at those kids running up on Jesus, they saw inconveniences to their big plans. This is at the heart of an abortion attitude. An abortion attitude isn't about bloodlust, right? No mother's wringing her hands wanting her baby to be torn apart. Nobody wants that. It's not about bloodlust. It's about disdain for that which inconveniences us. In 2004, the Guttmacher Institute anonymously surveyed 1,209 post-abortive women about their main reason for why they got an abortion. So they surveyed over 1,000 people, 1,200 people, right? And, and they wanted to get a baseline of what, is, what was your reason for why you terminated your pregnancy? The number one answer given, far and above every other answer was this, not ready for a child. Just not ready. It wasn't a good time for me. So it's not a good time. That's the number one answer. I know right now that I'm preaching to a group of people in Midlothian, Texas, okay? And I know right now that this room is probably not packed with Planned Parenthood volunteers. I just know that. I know where we're at. We are in the heart of the Bible Belt right now on a Sunday morning in a church service. You probably aren't that group of people and neither am I. But if you're here this morning and you're saying with me, yes, I want to bring an end to abortion. My question to you is, are you willing to first end it where it begins? 
Because abortion doesn't start as an action. It starts as an attitude. It doesn't begin with the hands. It begins in the heart. It doesn't start with what you do. It starts with what you value most. If you or your life or your plans or your goals or your happiness are your highest value in life, then anything, listen, then anything that inconveniences you and your happiness and your plans and your goals must necessarily be aborted or prevented. Do you see that? And that's where we're moving out of the realm of physical abortion and into something that we can all identify with, which is an abortion attitude. Self above all means obstacles to my happiness must be aborted or prevented. I want to show you uh, something for a minute. This, uh, I hesitated about whether or not I should post this uh, on the screen here in a second, but um, I, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I hesitated because I don't want uh, things to be misconstrued. And there's a high risk of that with virtually everything I'm saying this morning. Um, so I guess we'll just roll with it. Uh, I want to I post some pictures this morning for you. These are actual advertisements uh, for what I believe are mostly um, uh, birth control medications, pills. And I'm posting them not to make an indictment on you if you take birth control, for instance. The, hear me, just hear me really clearly. I am not saying that unequivocally things like birth control uh, are somehow absolutely sinful, that sort of thing. That is not what I'm saying. There are some that are abortive fashion and you should look into those, but I'm not saying that, right? There's research that you could do and find out more for yourself. That's not the point of this sermon, okay? Um, what I am wanting to show you is the attitude of our culture when they think about kids and when they want you to think about kids what the ideas are behind that. So look at it with that mindset for just a minute. We're gonna show you one by one. Let's put the first one up there. Nine months from now, the only thing I'm expecting to be is more awesome. Thanks, birth control. Let's go to the next one. Parenthood. An elite club where the cover charge is gaining 30 pounds and giving up on your dreams. I haven't gained 30 pounds yet, but I'm on my way. Live your life your way. It's your life. Go live it your way. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You live your life your way. Let's do that last one. This is my baby right now. This is my baby. Focus on your plans. Prevent pregnancy. Plans what prioritized. See this? These are current advertisements right now out there to you and me about how we ought to think about our life, our goals, our plans, our agenda, and how we ought to think about children playing a role in them. It is an abortive attitude that kills babies ultimately, not bloodlust. Why am I showing you these? I'm trying to make a point, and the point is this, that it's possible this morning here in the good old Bible Belt, Midlothian, Texas, at Stonegate Church on a Sunday morning, it is possible in this room 
for you and I to be anti-abortion, but not be pro-life. It's possible for you and I to be anti-abortion, which many of us are, but not be pro-life. Because being pro-life is about more than just not wanting babies to die. It's noticing, and here it is, it's noticing every place where human flourishing isn't happening and moving toward it, even if it inconveniences you. I'm gonna say that again. Being pro-life is about noticing every place where human flourishing isn't happening and moving toward it, even if it inconveniences you. So let me just tease this out for a minute. We're gonna go deeper down into the trenches of offense, shall we? Young married folks, are you just terrified of the prospect of what bringing a kid into your family is gonna do to your career? Does it keep you up at night? I remember uh, when I uh, was, I guess this was seven or eight years ago, we were living back in Houston and uh, I was right in the middle of my career as a touring artist doing that whole thing on the road uh, all the time. And we were married, had been married for about three, four years at that point. And I was just a really hard no to pregnancy for, for a while. Just, I was a really hard no, mainly because I couldn't imagine what introducing a child into our situation would do for my touring career, right? I'm trying to get radio singles on, on the radio. I'm trying to get tours set up. I'm trying to like make this thing work. And how am I supposed to make it work and be able to simultaneously see my wife and travel and do all this if we introduce baby, Right? And what maybe began as a noble thought of like, I wanna, I want, you know, I've got a ministry to do, quickly turned into fear and terror about the prospect of a child. And a child for me no longer became something that the Bible says is a gift. It became a curse and a dread and please no positive pregnancy tests. And I remember I was mowing my lawn one day, listening to a, a sermon podcast and the pastor who was preaching, he said something like this as I was mowing. He said, hey, by the way, if you're that husband who's prolonging not getting pregnant, even though your wife is eager to have a baby and she's, she's at the right age and she wants to have a family that, that she can raise up to know and love Jesus, but you're saying no because you're scared of what it's going to do to your career, stop and go have a baby with your wife. Honey, is that Marvin Gaye playing? What's happening? But I remember that was a, that was a change moment for me where God pierced my heart and convicted me and showed me that it's not that there's no noble reasons to prolong having kids, but my reason was fear-based. And if you're doing things out of fear, it probably doesn't honor God. That's just a good rule of thumb, right? You might be anti-abortion, but that's not pro-life. Let's talk about those with elderly parents for a minute. When you think about them, your parents, when you think about their medical needs, for instance, maybe they're up in their 80s, right? 90s. And you think about their old age and the costs involved with that and the care involved with that. Are they becoming for you just another thing 
that's sucking money out of you month to month? Have you forgotten Paul's charge to the children of elderly parents in uh, 1 Timothy 5 that we are to, quote, make some return for them and to, quote, provide for our own, 1 Timothy 4, or 5, 4 through 8? Are they a burden to you? Listen, you might be anti-abortion, but that's not pro-life. How about systemic issues? Like the plight of minorities, especially African-Americans in our country. Do, do, listen to this. Do the problems of things like mass incarcerations of black men or the fatherlessness of urban minority households push you toward things like mentorship programs for low-income kids and teens? Does it impact at all how you vote, for instance? You might be anti-abortion, but that's not pro-life. Pro-life is noticing every place where human flourishing isn't happening and moving toward it even if it inconveniences you. And if we want to stop the sin of abortion this morning, we need to stop it at the point of attitude, not at the point of action. We need to stop the attitude of abortion in our own hearts. And the only way to stop it is to look at the one who let himself be infinitely inconvenienced for us. Let's look back at the text, verse 14 of, John 10, of Mark 10. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child does not, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying hands on them. Jesus, did you hear it? Became indignant. Indignation rose up in him when he thought about his disciples wanting to squash the inconvenience of those children. He invited an interruption of plans in that moment, though he came to preach. Because Jesus cares for all people at all stages of life. And the gospel is the only solution to our self-loving, inconvenience-hating hearts. Because in the gospel, guys, we see the great King Jesus who is exalted and high and lifted up and reigning with God the Father. We see him in heaven, leaving the comfort of his throne in heaven to come and pour himself out as an offering for his people, constantly being inconvenienced for the sake of love, inconvenienced even to the point of death, inconvenienced even to the point of death on a cross, Philippians 2. The gospel is the antidote. Looking to Christ is our solution and our only hope. And so now I want to speak to a couple groups of people in here. One, I want to speak to you this morning if you've had an abortion, right? Though we are in the South, I'm not so naive as to think that hasn't happened. If you're in this room this morning and you've been involved in the sin of abortion, I want you to hear this. The gospel is for you this morning. It is for you. 
Yes, these have been heavy words in this sermon, but the gospel is still for you. God extends pardon to everybody who will humble themselves, confess their sin before him, and ask him for pardon. And in fact, he doesn't just pardon. The scripture says, he remembers your sins no more. He's forgotten it. Will you place your faith in him this morning? There is pardon for you. There's forgiveness for you. There's a changed life waiting for you. But maybe that might not be you this morning. Maybe for you, you are a Christian and you have been walking with God, but you reflect back on the days when you weren't and you reflect back on your abortion that you had before you were a Christian. And when you think about this topic, you live in a cloud of shame in a cloud of guilt. Can I tell you something? In Christ, that cloud evaporates. There is no more guilt or shame. He had sprinkled our conscience clean, Hebrews says. You can own this morning the same promise that I said a second ago, that for you in Christ, he remembers your sin. No more, no more. You're clean. You are not an abortionist. You're a saint and a child of God. And that is really good news this morning, isn't it? So where do we go from here? We've heard just the, the craziness of the devastation that is the abortion crisis in our country. We've seen it in our own hearts. We've seen it played out in clinic after clinic. We've seen it played out in our attitudes about children. Where do we go from here? What do we do? I wanna give you two things. Here's the first one. Number one, pray for your own indignation. Pray for your own indignation. Jesus saw his disciples rebuke the children and it says he became indignant. Can I ask you, when was the last time you felt indignant about this? And I don't just mean for a passing moment when last year all the things came about uh, came out about Planned Parenthood selling baby parts, which is horrendous. And many of us were inflamed with anger. But has there been sustained indignation in your heart for this issue? I'll tell you what, in my heart, no. The answer is no, absolutely not. I'm so convicted when I read the scripture because I come across passages like Psalm 119, 136. Rivers of water stream from my eyes because your law is not obeyed. Have you wept because people violate God's law and kill their babies? Have you wept for that? It's a really good indication of where our hearts are, isn't it? to ask that question. And if I'm being honest, the answer for me is no. And so the solution for me is to beg the Holy Spirit for that heart. I want that. And I want that for you guys. So that's number one, pray for your own indignation. And number two, my challenge is this, get involved beyond the ballot box. Get involved beyond the ballot box. Not less than that, but more than that. I know many of us cast our votes in ways that we would be 
happy to stand before God on in terms of the abortion issue. I really do believe that. In the South, statistically, that's the case anyways. But it's so much bigger than that, isn't it? And this morning, we want to equip you guys for ways to get involved beyond the ballot box. I'm gonna throw out a handful of options here for you. Number one, support your local pregnancy health clinics. Right? You know what I mean by that, of course, right? There are, there are those abortion mills out there like Planned Parenthood and others that offer reproductive health services and then they also can kill your baby if you want. And then there's alternatives to those. Women's health clinics, uh, for instance, First Look Medical Clinic, uh, it's in Waxahachie, is that right? Uh, is an alternative to these abortion mills like Planned Parenthood. They offer things to uh, uh, pregnant ladies like uh, free ultrasounds, STD testing, pregnancy testing. Uh, they're they're going to point you in the right direction for what to do uh, when uh, and if you have your child. They can get you connected with folks that would want to adopt your children. Like it's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful organization that's doing a lot of tremendous work in our area of South Dallas, North Texas, uh, that it would, it would make a ton of sense for you to get involved in some capacity. One capacity could be giving toward them right? Actually, under your seat, I think we have it here, uh, is a First Looks envelope where you can actually give in that envelope toward uh, uh, d- donations given toward their building fund so that they can have a facility in order to, to do this better and better, aiding women who are in crisis pregnancy situations. So that card's under your seat. It's an envelope you can actually give today and out in the lobby, we have a booth set up where you can give that money uh, for them today. That's one really easy way that you can say no to abortion very practically beyond the ballot box. So that's one, support your local pregnancy health clinic. Uh, number two, how about this? Because, because the sanctity of life is the sanctity of all life, no matter what stage of life, how about this? Become a mentor. Become a mentor. Do you know there's like actual mentoring programs in Midlothian that would love to have you in the mix, investing in young kids and teens, showing them the love of Jesus day after day, caring for them, being the parent that maybe they don't have. Uh, Mentors Care is the program that we're going to tell you about this morning. And again, there's a whole thing in the lobby that if you, if, when you hear that, you're like, man, that's me. I got the time for that. I can do that. In the lobby, you can sign up today. You can get involved with Mentors Care. The website, if you want to look more into it, is mentors.care. Become a mentor. Help be part of the solution in that way. How about this? Become a protester. Now, I know nobody kind of gets worse rap than folks who stand at abortion clinics, right? Even Christians don't like those Christians. But I want to say this. There is a a wrong way to do it. I want to say that. But there are really great, right, holy, humble ways to do it as well. And I know many people that do that they, they'll, they'll post up at an abortion mill in the front lawn and they will appeal to women as they come in. Please don't kill your baby. Please don't trust in Jesus. We are offering you another option. We'll adopt your baby, right? I know people that that's, that is their plea with these women. 
Uh, I, Jeff Durbin, he's a, he's a pastor. Uh, I was listening to a sermon of his on, on the abortion crisis. And he said, before he really got involved with the uh, abortion protest side of things, uh, he was doing an interview on his radio program with a lady who came on. And since she was a kid, her, her mom and dad took her to protest at, at, at abortion clinics. And uh, so she has been involved in it for years and years, decades, in fact. And she still now goes to these abortion mills and she'll stand out and she'll plead with these mothers not to kill their babies, to trust in Christ, to, to be able to, to have their baby and, and offering them solutions for adoption care, those sorts of things. And, uh, and Jeff is asking her more about this. He's, he's really interested. And he says, so what are some of the fruit that's come about this uh, for you? And she says, we've seen over 363 babies birthed, rescued from death because of our conversations directly with these mothers, these young mothers going in who, who just didn't know about other options and God pierced their hearts in that conversation. 363 babies are alive today because of that. And of course, Jeff's mouth drops. That's an amazing number. And then she says, yeah, 363 babies this year. 363 this year alone. Let me ask you this. Put aside for a minute what you think about how you would be perceived if you stood outside of a clinic. If you knew that one baby would be alive today because of your efforts and your conversation with a mother, is it not worth the shame? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And lastly, how about this? Get involved with Stonegate's orphan care ministry. Maybe some of you are new to this church and you kind of don't know what our um, ethos here is and what we're about and what we're passionate on. We are passionate about this subject, specifically orphan care and adoption, fostering. We want to equip our people to be able to care for the vulnerable, the marginalized, the voiceless, the orphans. We want to equip our people for that. And so we, we have a big ministry here that does that, that, that helps uh, bring care alongside adoptive families, that helps fund families who are getting involved in adoption. In fact, I believe it was last year when we did our Orphan Care Sunday, we had over 33 families actively in our church pursuing adoption, involved in adoption, or having had adopted. And our church is not massive. 33 families in this church that were involved. Isn't that beautiful? That could be you. You could be involved either by adopting or fostering yourself or getting involved with the care of those who are doing that. Getting training for foster care and, and, and those sorts of things. Uh, there's more information about that in the lobby. Stonegate's Orphan Care Ministry is in the lobby representing out there and you can go sign up today, get involved, get information. Let's do this. Let's make a change. You know, I, I, we're in that world right now too, for those of you who don't know, and I'm, I'm sure many of you do, me and Kelly have been in the adoption process for a long time now. And when I say a long time, we still don't have our child and we've been in the mix with this whole thing for over four years now. It has been crazy. It has been uh, an emotional roller coaster. It has been financially expensive. It has been hard. And I'm so thankful for this church that has come alongside us so well to take care of us as we're adopting. Right now, we are days away from getting uh, the phone call that says, uh, your little boy in India 
uh, has his passport now, you can come pick him up. He's already ours. We just need his passport. We're just days away. But I remember at the early part of this, just looking down the road at these next, you know, I didn't think it was going to be four years, but years ahead and just feeling so overwhelmed. It was getting so expensive. It was getting so difficult. The country was considering closing at one point. Uh, all of these things were happening. And I was talking to one of our church planning residents at the time, Brad Marvin. You guys probably remember him. He now has a church up in Arlington. Love this guy. Love his heart. He's adopted. He, he's adopted a boy from uh, uh, Africa, actually. And uh, I was in a conversation with him about this because I was just going, man, how was it for you? Tell me, like, I, I just feel, I'm at the beginning, I feel like at the end of my rope a little bit. Talk to me, you know? And I just remember, I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me, we were, we were at Valentine's house and we were having this conversation. He looked at me and he just said, you know, what has got me through it was this, remembering that if it doesn't feel a little like dying, it's probably not the gospel. If it doesn't feel to you a little like dying, it's probably not the gospel. Being inconvenienced feels a little like dying, doesn't it? Spending bunches of money feels a little like dying. Giving up your time to mentor feels like dying. Giving up your reputation, posting up at a clinic feels a little bit like dying. But we are imitators of Christ and Christ died. So why don't we? Why don't we? That's the invitation. Let's die so that others can live. Let's pray. I want to just give you a moment for the Holy Spirit to do his work of conviction, exposing sin. calling to repentance, of reinforcing the good news that Jesus pardons and loves and remembers your sin no more. Father, we are guilty in this room maybe not all of us of abortion, but of an abortive attitude. And we say as your people this morning, we're sorry. And we wanna look more like Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, who inconvenienced himself infinitely for the sake of life, God, would you make us more like our Savior? Would you make us advocates for life on every level, at every stage, in every place, with every race? God, change us. Make us more like you. I invite you to just open up your hands on your lap where you're, where you're at. Just... Ask God, God, make me more like you. Make me more like you. Lord, we trust that when your word goes forth, it does not return void. And so God, we are expectant that you are gonna do a good work in our hearts.
And God, we are asking this morning for an end to abortion in America. We are asking for it, that you would cause your people to rise up in righteous indignation and say no more, no more. And that it would happen. And the numbers would decrease and decrease and decrease and legislation would change and change and change. And the, the culture around us would come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. We're trusting you for that. And we believe that you and you alone have the power to do it. You say in Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Our answer, God, is no. Nothing's too difficult for you. So we ask a big prayer this morning, God. Bring an end to it. Bring an end to it. In Jesus' mighty name, bring an end to it. Bring an end to it. In Jesus' good name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.